I've found the development community writ large to be some of the smartest folks in the business sector that were earliest to the to the party in terms of understanding this. And part of it, I think, is the sort of inherent, like, just understanding of architecture and design and sort of just understanding how one thing impacts the other. Um, but I think also they understood it was good business. They understood that um, you could actually save money by building smarter. You know, maybe some of that is LEED certification, U.S. Green Building Council, EPA. Some of it is just um, the fact that in these urban areas, you know, consumers were saying, I want shared mobility on site. You know, I want bike parking in the building. I actually don't want the parking space. They're hearing it from their customers. Welcome. Welcome to the A-Fire podcast. Now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Why is it so hard to make our cities work? Is it is it really impossible to have affordable housing for everyone? I mean, why do so many people have to die every year in car accidents? Why do so many children have problems breathing? Why is it so expensive and so difficult to just live life, go to work, or get through traffic? Now, there's a lot of people and institutions that are blamed for this all the time as we all yell outside our car windows, but I wonder if perhaps some of the problem may be sitting in our garages. And Gabe Klein, who's been a guest of, of AFIRE a couple of times in the last few years, and he's also the former commissioners of both uh, Chicago and Washington, D.C. at different times, departments of transportation, uh, he launched two of the country's largest bike share systems, and he also co-authored a book called Startup City, uh, and he is the co-founder of a consultancy called CityFi. So I think he's someone who might be able to help us understand this in great part because right on his website, he has the statement, cars almost killed our cities. Strong stuff. Mm -hmm. So I want to welcome Gabe Klein to the AFR podcast. Thank you, Gunnar. Thanks for having me. And uh, let's stir up some controversy today. That sounds good. So <laughs> let's just start with it. Okay, these cars. I love my car. Uh, cars are great. Uh, what do you mean it killed or almost killed my cities. What do you mean by that? And, and by the way, you know, I grew up in a family of people that loved anything with wheels. My dad had two Porsches. He had a 356C and a 356B back in the 50s and 60s. Like, I love cars too. But the problem is there's a place for a car. There's a certain set of use cases for a car. And the the reason I made that strong statement, and, and, and actually I gave a, a TEDx talk and it was the folks like it was like the editor right it was the folks that that um put the video out there like hey let's put this title on it but it's true and um you know i think the issue is that we are we as like creatures are creatures of habit and once you give us a certain way of doing something where there's drinking coffee every morning right or reading the newspaper or you know living outside of the city and driving our car into the city every day like we, we are just creatures of habit. And so we made some decisions around the turn of the last century and then midway through the century uh, in terms of uh, combustion engines, uh, in terms of moving people out to the suburbs, uh, leaving their jobs in the downtown, 
uh, you know, white flight, various other things that I cover in my talk. And then you sort of just sit there and deal with the repercussions for the next 50, 60, 70 years. And I think it's time to say, like, it's time to admit that we made some terrible errors, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think particularly Americans are not great at saying, wow, we really bleep up, you know, <laughs> like we, but we did, you know, and you know, like, um, we may have thought these were good decisions. Like, Hey, our kids can run free in, in the, in the cul-de-sac. Okay. But why do we want our kids to be able to run free in the cul-de-sac? Because we had to leave the city because in the city, they were going to get run over by a car because we let the cars take over the streets. Right. And then when people move to the suburbs, we really let the cars take over the streets. Some of it was just straight racist, to be honest. It's like, hey, the people left in the city don't have much of a voice. Mm -hmm. We're coming in from the suburbs, white people in cars, and we're just going to drive through as fast as humanly possible. And what are you going to do about it, right? Not that that's what people were thinking. No. But that's sort of what happened. Right. And, um, you know, we've had a few kids killed in crosswalks in Washington, D.C., where I live, over the last few months. Um, a uh, child was killed just a few weeks ago, uh, Allison Hart. It was terrible. She was on her bike, learning how to bike, right behind her dad in the crosswalk, and got run over by a truck. Um, and, you know, I, I found myself conversing with her mom a bit on Twitter. It was very emotional, for probably for both of us. And one of the things I was saying was, because there's a lot of blame going around, there's blame for the government, for DDOT. And I want to make clear that the fault lies with all of us. Because when I ran DDOT and I said, hey, we need to make these changes before I had children for other people's kids to make them safe, I get pushback from half the neighbors in the community saying, we don't want a speed bumper, we don't want a protected bike lane, or we don't want a connected sidewalk network. And so I wanted to make that nuanced point, even though it was painful, that we all hold responsibility for making the cultural shift that it's going to take to make our city safe. That's such an important idea for us to look at this and realize it's it's ours. It's not someone else who's doing it to us, but it's ours. We're all making it. And there's no one party. I, I love when, when when people talk about how it's all the bicyclists' fault that you know they don't feel safe on the, on, on the sidewalk or something like that. And I'm like, well, it's it's more nuanced than that. It's definitely more nuanced. And I find in America. When you want to get into a nuanced conversation, it's hard. And people don't want to, particularly yeah. if they're emotional, whether it's about politics or street safety. And, and I also understand the anger. Um, but that's why when I go out and talk to people, I try to talk to them on their level, as we were talking about before the podcast. Yeah. Because if you're going to convince the business community to invest in bicycle infrastructure or new parks or whatever, you have to show them the return on investment. And it's there. Man, is it there, you know? Well, one of the things that, that always is compelling, I like to watch what AAA declares is the cost of car ownership and usage. Uh, and they update it every year. It's, it's fantastic right on the Internet. But it's right now the average, this isn't for your big SUV, this is just for a regular car, is $805.50 per month. And that's not even really talking about all the kind of hidden costs if you're you know renting an apartment that has you know parking underneath and somehow it's baked into the cost there and everything else and and you know we talk about affordability uh, which is a serious problem only getting worse with a housing shortage across the country and again lots of blame is being placed everywhere you know it's the nimbys no it's it's government regulations no it's greedy developers no it's this and 
it, 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 I, no one at any point says, no, it's the cars. Right. <laughs> no, it's right. the fact that we've got to build this infrastructure in our apartment buildings for all these cars. And that's expensive. Well, and I've written a few things over the years about the importance of carrots and sticks. Because, again, it's about psychology and sociology. And it's like, if you just tell people, oh, you're bad because you bought a parking space with your condo, that's not going to go over really well. But if you give people great bike share options at their building, pre-tax benefits uh, for transit, a mobility wallet, which is a concept I've been thinking about for, for, for many years, and you say, by the way, we're not going to build parking in your building, then I think you get a different response. Oh, and by the way, <clears throat> by not building parking in your building, your condo is going to be 400000 instead of 465000 And by the way, you can afford more condo, right? You don't have to get a second yeah. mortgage. Like suddenly people are like, oh, so this is good for me. And I, le I, I learned this back at Zipcar. Like, you can appeal to early adopters in terms of like doing good things for the environment and it's good for other people. You want to be successful, you have to appeal to people's inherent selfish interests. Right. Just the way it is. Right. 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 It's not a bad or a good thing, it's reality. I mean, if you can get yourself to pay less, get more, that, that's a pretty good argument right there. You know, people mm -hmm. will go for that. Yes, and well, and convince people that, you know, freedom isn't a buck oh five gallon of gas. You know, freedom is spending more time with your kids. Freedom is getting some exercise on your way to work instead of going to the gym. You know, freedom is having some money to save instead of putting it into a capital investment in transportation. But it takes marketing. Yeah. It takes explaining. And then it takes policy change. And then it takes public and private acting together to make the change. And we're just, we're just not terribly good at that. Yeah. Although, you know, we're supposed to be world leaders when it comes to marketing. You know, we should be able to make the, the argument that makes sense from a marketing perspective. Well, this is what I say to the Chambers of Commerce. I'm like, look, if we can sell people sugar water, <clears throat> Coca-Cola, <laughs> you know, if we can so, so effectively sell people sugar water, this is literally killing them. Yeah. Why can't we sell people on good things that have positive externalities instead of negative externalities? Yeah. yeah. You know, but also some of it is getting the private sector, and I'm a private sector person almost my entire career, to realize that their responsibility is not just to generate profit for their shareholders. And I've been saying this for decades, um, that it is to do good. Anybody can pump viscous liquid. Uh, out of the ground in a monopolistic way, it's not hard. I'm very unimpressed. <laughs> right? Like, you know, you can like Elon Musk or not like Elon Musk, but what he's done is hard. Yeah. What he's done is very hard. That's why people are so impressed by it. When you take on an entirely new industry, new area, and say, hey, we're going to try to save the planet. We're going to, you know, even if you disagree with making electric cars instead of electric buses, whatever, um, you know, nothing easy is worth doing mm -hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah. So. No, and, you know, when you think about it, the, the oil industry throughout its history has not been about the engineering, although there are great engineers that work in that area and everything else, and they're trying to figure it out, but th their business has been defined by externalities, by, by, you know, protecting whatever the source is, by, you know, 
manufacturing desire uh, for it and use of it. Um, that they've had, actually, oil business has been really, really hard, and they're very mm. proud of what they've done. It's just not necessarily what we might define um, as important uh, for uh, for people that smart to do um, with their time. Although, right. You know, and it, yeah. it it's cleaner than coal, I guess. I guess I sort of. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I think it's all related. But but here's the thing. You know, imagine if those people put their brains into renewable energy. I mean, yeah. the fact is that renewable energy is a lot easier. Yeah. Right. And and but but this is the problem with America and maybe the problem with people is that once we make an investment in doing something a certain way and we get used to it. And I think particularly engineers and sometimes our, our friends that are lawyers and others that have certain ways of doing things and they sort of are like, hey, we we learned how to do it this way. Let's keep doing it this way. Right. And it's like, yeah, but it's destroying our planet. Yeah, but, you know, that's okay because it's cheap and easy. Yeah. And, it's, and now we've built an entire economy around it. And I'm like, I know, but that's not enough because the deeper you get in this, yeah. the harder it is to get out. And so what we have now is we have an entire economy or the majority of our economy based on cheap fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And we've built a way of life in the in suburbia uh, that's unsustainable. Yeah. Yeah. We've buried all the costs so you can't see them. Um, right. There's a long tail of externalities yeah. that adds up to a lot of money, Ooh. but each one is so small. Yeah, and and again, we don't notice that we're spending $805 a month per car um, and what that does to the rest of our lives. Um, yeah. And on well, that case, because, I, yeah, yeah, but, but look, that's because a car has been equated with a house. Right. You buy a house and a car. So you do have to have a house, right? You have to have a roof over your head, and you have to have a car. And so then you view it as a sunk cost. Right. And then you got to use it as much as possible to get your right. 805 right. out of it. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, part of what, okay, so, you know, I, I think, uh, and again, he's a controversial figure. So, you know, I don't want to necessarily, you know, have a shrine to, to Mr. Musk. But he also did something that I thought was really intelligent right from the beginning. Was he made, and this was something that people had missed for decades. He made electric cars aspirational. He made them sexy. He made it like, oh, I want one of those. He started not with a Econobox. In fact, he's yet to build one. And I'm waiting for the Econobox. That, that, I'm, I'm really into that idea. But that's, I'm not most people. But, you know, he started with the sports car. He started with a Lotus, for crying out loud. I mean, you know, the sexiest, yeah. you know, car on earth. You know, kind of, you know, maybe Ferrari. But, you know, it's, it's a yeah. pretty darn sexy car. And, and that's what he started with and, and made it into something that you could not get anywhere else so that now you have people. Now, not everyone can afford a, 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 a Tesla at this point, but everyone wants one. And it's shifted the market. It's shifted it to what's the best thing that you can have as a car, you, an electric car. Uh, that was not the case 10 years ago, that people did not believe that uh, until this really kind of became a thing. So how do you do that? How do you... How do you think about some of the things uh, in terms of changing infrastructure, changing how we live our lives, uh, changing, you know, having a bicycle path down Pennsylvania Avenue? How does that become something that, that's less, this is good for the planet, which is good, it's great, but it doesn't necessarily change people's opinions, or this is awesome, this is fun, this is great, my life is better because I have this. Yeah. 
Well, I think in some ways that's what's happened with cycling, right? Because, you know, we used to joke about mammals like men in Lycra, yeah. you know, running around. And, um, you know, bikes were seen as something that were either for the very poor or the very rich, which doesn't make a lot of sense. But when you go around and talk to, like, you know, lily white sort of wealthy uh, communities, they're like, oh, you know, we see poor, like, minorities on bikes. And you go into a minority community and they're like, well, we only see like wealthy white people on bikes. So unfortunately, there was a stigma about what cycling was, like instead of just being a mode of transportation. And so now I think what we're seeing is like, all right, we have some premium electric bikes, but we have basic bike share that's like very utilitarian that everybody can use. And when you go out, you stand on the corner, like in Washington, D.C., you, you see people, black, white, Southeast Asian, old, young, gay, straight, everybody's using bikes. It's just a mode of transportation. And that's where we need to get to with electric vehicles, period. I think, though, the electric bike, and I don't want to sound like the nutty bike guy, but I'm going to be straight with you. Like, I live in, in an urban area. We have an electric cargo bike. I have an electric regular bike. We don't have a second car for our, our entire household. Um, we don't need one, right? And so I think the electric bike is different. It gives you more range, more comfort, summer, winter. And I think it's going to change. I, I think we'll, we'll sell more electric bikes and electric cars in the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. No, no question. Mm -hmm. And it's so much no more question. of an efficient machine for transportation because all that electricity is being used to move you. Not to and it's fun. Not, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's fun. It's healthy. So, but getting back to your point about what Elon did that was brilliant by starting, which is a classic marketing move. You start with the premium product, then you fill in, right? And, um, you know, I think people are realizing that the bike is everything, basically, for those short to medium trips. Yeah. It's everything. It's utility. It's fun. It's exercise. It can be that premium ride. You know, and, yeah. and it can be shared. And ultimately, I think where we need to get with infrastructure and the actual devices that we use is the majority of them need to be shared. Uh, and it needs to be in shared spaces at low speeds. And that's controversial, uh, whether it's infrastructure or devices, because if you share all the devices, then you need many fewer devices to sell. And right. So the companies are like, oh, I don't know if we want to get in this service business. It seems like a race to the bottom. We have a whole economy built on selling individuals cars and stuff or bikes or scooters. Um, and then the infrastructure, we need to really segregate by uh, size and speed or size or speed, depending on the context. So you can have a bus lane that's shared with bikes, even though they're very different sizes and weights, mm -hmm. but it can be done. It's being done on 14th Street right here in D.C. very successfully. Um, but everything can't be just dominated by the automobile. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I wonder, too, I, I, I actually love those kinds of shared um, lanes with, with buses because it's a highly underutilized lane usually. Um, but it's also, for a bicyclist point of view, which a lot of people don't understand because they haven't spent a lot of time doing urban cycling, is yeah. that now you have these very slow-moving mastodons um, it's from a safety perspective, it's a lot easier because you're fast. If you're on a bicycle, you're faster. You're not that fast, but you're faster than a, mm -hmm. than a bus. Um, 
you know, you're not dealing with the zip zipping around of a of a cab that's unpredictable sometimes and doors opening and things like that. Um, that actually it kind of works, although you are, and you know, hopefully these buses all move to electric as soon as possible because you're quite often sucking up diesel fumes when you're when you're behind a bus. Um, but, well, it is true, but like to your point though, if a bus comes along every ten minutes, yeah, by the time the bus gets there. I've gotten to my destination or, or I'm off the, you know, I've taken a left or a right. And so there's a lot of capacity yeah. there. Yeah. No, yeah. It, it's astonishing how much empty space there actually is. This is something that, that, that uh, a lot of folks I, I speak with when talking about buildings and the insides of buildings. And when you think about how much empty space there is for how many hours throughout the day, throughout the week, um, that to a certain extent, part of the problem is, is learning to see learning to see the mm -hmm. empty space and learning to see what's what's there. Um, again, a, a bicyclist experience of urban cycling is that most people don't understand how much space there is on that city road. That, you know, yeah. to a car, it doesn't look like any space. If you're inside a car, it looks like I'm, you know, I have no room at all. But there's quite a bit of room um, around that car, to the side of the car, between the cars, wherever it might be. Um, and that's often where the confusion, I think, between cyclists and, and drivers can be because they're like, what? You're crazy. There's no room here. <laughs> I know. Well, that's why there's that, you know, that famous uh, picture of like, this is sort of your your brain on drugs. No, no, no. This is this is your <laughs> this is your street uh, in, in you know buses and light rail. This is in cars. And this is like people walking or biking. And you see how many people you can fit in the same space walking or biking. Mm -hmm. or on transit and the car is just an extremely inefficient use of space unless it's shared yeah and you maximize the utilization of every vehicle and i think you know one of the things that is coming which is sort of exciting is this idea of you know having like 12 17 22 passenger vehicles that are relatively highly utilized that are maybe a little bit more flexible now people call it microtransit, and there's lots of iterations of it you don't really see microtransit at scale, but I do think in the future there's this sort of in-between space between like Uber and Lyft and right. the bus. And it doesn't mean the bus is going away. It doesn't mean Uber and Lyft are going to die, but it means that we could have something that's like a diverted fixed route right. service, basically, right. that's more flexible. Like some sort of kind of... Uh app-enabled uh, shuttle service or something like that, maybe. Uh, I, I know they've been working on it, so I mean, I think it's something that's like in the mix. Um, yeah, it's just we have this expectation that all this stuff's going to make money. Uh, tra yeah. Transportation services don't make a lot of money, Yeah. typically. Yeah. And so that's the challenge. I mean, Silicon Val Valley's gotten enamored with transportation services, which I love. It's been great. It's been really interesting. <laughs> but come on, Uber... I mean, when was the last time they lost less than $8 billion in a year? <laughs> I mean, come on. These are not profitable businesses. No, no. And, and not at this point. I guess they hope that at some point, but uh, not at this yeah, point. Yeah, maybe if you twist EBITDA in a, into a pretzel, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. And, I'm and not convinced. Just so you know, anyone who's listening, we do not recommend that you twist EBITDA into a pretzel at any time. So. <laughs> So that's that's only my guest's opinion, not mine. Uh, so exactly. we go from there. Um, all right. Well, so we need more 
infrastructure for pedestrians that makes sense and bicyclists and electric and whatever else this might be. It's a lot of change. It's a lot of different things that have to be done. And, and there's, there's a lot of folks out there that, that are on the full spectrum between, you know, militant to accommodating. Uh, how should, should folks work with cities? How should private companies and individuals and cities work together to say, all right, let's figure out how to understand that this is all our fault, all of us, and you know, what are we going to do to fix it? And let's find a better way to do it. I mean, how do you think we should proceed? Well, some people think that these ideas are pretty radical. I think they're just totally rational that we're going to need to close off a lot of streets to through traffic, local streets. And basically, the roadmap for what we need to do is looking at how we intuitively built cities in like the 1700s, 1800s, right? Right. You know, we, we had streetcars everywhere. We had people walking in the streets, people hawking goods in the streets. Streets were places for commerce, for exchange, for community. Um, the pandemic has sped up a lot of the things I predicted in my book, Startup City, you know, that, that we would use the internet to travel globally particularly for, for business, but that we would spend much more time in our communities, whether it was um, growing food or creating our own energy or uh, recreating with our friends and family and that the, you know, and not traveling as much, not transporting ourselves from DC to Fairfax. Right. Yeah. And whether it's the rise of delivery services that are scheduled, um, you know, um, artificial intelligence that's you know going to allow us to basically have meetings like this, but that we will be sitting next to each other. Yep. Uh, I mean, the, the world's going to shift from a technology perspective. It's not that technology should drive the decisions that we make, but if it helps to drive us back towards a life that we used to lead that was a little bit healthier and more sustainable combined with uh, maybe a little bit more of the of ease of use um, with the new technology, because let's be honest, life was also a little bit harder back then. Yeah. So all the smart infrastructure in our homes, outside of our homes, and the cost comes down so that it can be something shared by everybody so that everybody can have these tools. Then I think, you know, we have a shot at saving the planet, making some money at the same time, and um, potentially, you know, our, our children having a better life um, and a safer life. If we don't peel back the onion a little bit and work a little bit harder and just keep extracting the viscous liquid out of the ground, then I think, you know, we, we have one or two generations left. Yeah. Yeah. If that, it seems like, you know, it seems like it's becoming more dire um, as, as we move. Well, I, I, I think I told you this last time we talked, but when I put my book out and I'd go speak in Texas or Des Moines or whatever, first thing I would do is put up like five slides on how the planet is melting basically. And some people were like right on. And some people were like this guy, man, he's just trying to scare us, freak us out. But I'm like, look, I'm not a scientist. Just look at the trend lines. Look at when the industrial revolution started. Look at um, the changes in the heat index. Look at, you know, climate shifts, it's sort of like obvious how fast this is happening. Like you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out we got a couple decades left. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's going to get less and less fun. 
<laughs> as we go through the next couple of decades, if we're not, you know, careful about this. And there's a there's a big actually, you know, I, I believe that the especially institutional real estate investment community gets it, believes in it, and is trying oh, I, to figure out a so. way to do it. Um, I, I don't think they have all the answers yet. I think people are looking for the answers. But the whole ESG movement, I think, has been, on on the whole, very positive. I mean, there's things that are lacking that need to be fixed and everything else. There always is. But I, I think there's been a... I, I, I've sat down with several investors that said, oh, yeah, ESG is really important, but here's how we're going to improve it. You know, that they're already thinking in terms of the next step and where things go. And there are already office buildings being built that are, that are you know, carbon negative. You know, they're actually taking some out uh, in, in terms of their, their footprint. So I, I think there's, there's some concern. There's some built-in problems. You know, for example, the manufacture of concrete is an issue. But these are things that they're working through. I think getting to and from these buildings is another big win if uh, they are able to think about infrastructure. And many of them do invest directly in infrastructure, but to think about how to... Um, how to kind of see some alternatives uh, to the way that we've been doing it before, to the, you know, the, 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 the Moses-style big honking highway through the middle of a neighborhood sort of thing. Um, and a lot of it may be simple. I mean, you certainly pointed that out uh, in your tenures in Chicago and, and, uh, and D.C. Not to say that any of it was easy, but uh, there were some kind of simple solutions that had outsized yeah. impact um, on what people did. Um, so, you know, talk about that. How do you find that lever? Yeah. Well, first of all, to your first point, I've found the development community writ large to be some of the smartest folks in the business sector that were earliest to the, to the party in terms of understanding this. And part of it, I think, is the sort of inherent, like, just understanding of architecture and design and sort of just understanding how one thing impacts the other. Um, but I think also they understood it was good business. They understood that um, you could actually save money by building smarter. You know, maybe some of that is LEED certification, U.S. Green Building Council, EPA. Some of it is just um, the fact that in these urban areas, you know, consumers were saying, I want shared mobility on site. You know, I want bike parking in the building. I actually don't want the parking space. So they're hearing it from their customers. Um, but I think that when you move to the public right-of-way, what's interesting is that, um, you know, the developers, like, they have a real interest in it. And in some cases, like, when I ran DOTs, I'd let the developer build the streets around it, and we'd come together on a design. Like, we did that on 4th Street in Southwest. It's beautiful. Um, but I think that the developers have this opportunity to get more involved, like say, okay, you know what? We're supposed to be building 800 parking spaces. How about we build 200, but we're going to provide mobility for everybody in our building to the tune of $150 a month. Now we're going to save 6 million on building the parking, right? And the interest on that alone would pay for the mobility for all the people. Plus it's an amenity for them. And we'll allow the scooters on site, the bikes on site, all of that. We'll give you a taste of car sharing. Uh, we'll give you free transit. And we'll also give you the ability to re-up as you want, as much as you want. So you want to spend 300 a month, great. Put it another 150 on the wallet. And then every day on the first, you give us 2,000 a month in rent or payment or whatever, we'll give you 150 in mobility. And I think then the person in the building says to themselves, wait a second. I could 
get free mobility 150 or I could go spend 250 on a parking space rental or whatever right then you have the carrots and sticks in line for the developer the government's on board with it. the government can supplement you know we have a bill going through now to give everybody in DC $100 a month in Metro right so this is where things are going and whether it's the government, whether it's your employer, or whether it's the developer or the owner of your building, you can see a world where transportation, just like education and healthcare, becomes a part of your life that is provided to you. Uh, now, you have choice in how you spend your time. Do you want to ride a bike that day? Do you want to walk? Do you want to take the bus? But it's provided to you. And by the way, that can make transit sustainable financially. So we need these virtuous cycles and circles and we need your folks on board we got to bring the government together with your folks together with the mobility industry together with some technology and say hey how can we do this in a different way that benefits everybody right why do you think we can get it done well i think people are getting smarter every day now the importance of showing people versus telling people is important. And you brought that up in your question. I didn't really answer it. Some of the changes on the street, you can literally put up plastic posts and just show people how it operates, right? Before you spend a million dollars on new infrastructure, yeah, you can put up a bike, a, a bike lane or a, a, sorry, a bus lane even in an afternoon. And I think we need to do that with lots of things. We have to trial balloon things and not expect it to work. Say, hey, we're, we're gonna pilot something. It, it's probably gonna fail the way we're first iterating on it. We're gonna continue to iterate on it with everybody's feedback, make it better and better. And then once we learn, we're gonna institutionalize that, we're gonna roll it out. You know, and so I think the way you do it is as important as what you do. Mm-hmm. And then how you communicate to people like, whoa, whoa, if you hate this, totally cool. Yeah. We might hate it too. With the first protected bike lane that we put in, we put this one-way bike lane down 15th Street. And we told people, if you hate it, we'll pull it out. Uh, If you want changes to it, we'll make changes to it. So they came back in a year. They said, actually, everything you said was true. Slow traffic down at 15th Street. We love that. Our kids are safer. Our complaint is we see people salmoning on the bike lane. Yeah. So we need you to make this a two-way bike lane. We're like, totally. That is like so obvious now that you pointed out. And then you're working with the community, with the homeowners, with the developers. Instead of like being at odds, everybody's got a say. And everybody feels good about the new thing that gets built. And it didn't cost a million dollars. Yeah, It's not that hard. No. Here, here. Um, I, and by the way, we should probably tell listeners what salmoning means. It's a mm. lovely descriptive term about something that bicyclists yes. do. Um, riding the wrong way in a bike lane. Tisk, tisk. Yeah. Yeah. Or does it, if enough people are doing it, does it tell us that there's a need? Yeah. Yeah. Quite often, it seems to me that when people are doing things, quote, wrong, that that's telling you what to do. That's that's where the, oh, the people yeah. want to go. Yeah, that's where the natural flow needs to be. Uh, jaywalking is a great example. Oh, yeah. You, know, you see, like in Chicago, we had thousands of people jaywalking between um, Millennium Park and the lakefront. And people were getting killed. Yeah. Turns out the previous mayor had pulled this big crosswalk out so the traffic could speed up. 
So we put the signal back and the crosswalk back. Yeah. Um, again, it's not that hard. If you look at the infrastructure that used to be in a place, even if it's 100 years ago, that's usually what you have to do. When we did the, the, the streetcar plan for the city here, spent a million dollars, did all this planning. What we came up with was that where the, the, the main streetcar corridors were, 75 years ago that's where they needed to go <laughs> and that's where the development would happen yeah around them right right, right. That, that yeah because what makes a streetcar or a subway or anything else work is you know those those points those stops and everything around it and yeah absolutely and the buildings were there and the developers yeah. were like hey if you were to do that if you were to do a beautiful streetscape that alone would probably get us to invest and they have yeah but I mean, look at uh, 8th Street in D.C., whether you love the streetcar, 8th Streetcar, you know, billions of dollars have been spent by developers to put in you know, beautiful buildings or rehab buildings, bars and restaurants and Whole Foods. It works. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. Well, I, I leave this conversation feeling uh, pretty optimistic. I'm, I'm very excited about, the, you know, the, the, uh, the future of our cities. It's, it, it's not dead yet. We can we can bring it alive. Um, we can absolutely solve these problems. We're smart, but it takes good marketing. It takes bringing people with you, talking to people on their level, level, having certain simple truths, but then tailoring the message to the people you're talking to, um, and being open-minded. Yeah. Not saying there's only one way to do things because there's not. Yeah. Well, we've unfortunately run out of time, but uh, thank you so much, Gabe, for uh, sharing some time with me here today on the A Fire Podcast. Thank you, Gunnar. I think I could interview you. You're <laughs> as interesting as I am. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks. You've been listening to the A Fire Podcast. Remember to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. A Fire is not engaged in providing tax, accounting, or legal advice through this podcast. No content included here is to be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any asset. Some information, including the A Fire Podcast, may have been obtained from third party sources considered to be reliable. A Fire is not responsible for guaranteeing the accuracy of third party information. The opinions expressed in the A Fire Podcast are those of its respective contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of A Fire. To learn more about the A Fire Podcast, including underwriting and guest support, visit afire.org slash podcast.